Blog Talk Radio. History of Atlantic City's Missouri Avenue Beach. The book offers dozens of historical pictures from the 1920s through the 60s. The pictures show beachgoers of all social strata. There are doctors and lawyers and entertainers. There are more than enough pretty girls, all in their beach wear and swimsuits. And they're all obviously very happy people. So, what is it that makes this particular beach noteworthy? It was a segregated beach, and these folks were almost exclusively Afro-Americans. I have been unable to establish a connection with my guest, so wait a minute. Cheryl, are you there? Hi. I am. Thanks for joining me. Tell us, how did you run across this story? Uh... About four years ago in the summer, I was visiting a friend in Philadelphia, and we were walking down South Street, and I saw some pictures through a gallery window that caught my eye, and uh, we decided to go in and take a closer look. And that's when I first saw the images from John W. Mosley's collection at Temple University. And uh, uh, from what I understand, this is this uh, the Chicken Bone Beach, or the the Missouri Avenue Beach, and everything. This is all mostly about the north side of Atlantic City. Yes, the the beach that was nicknamed Chicken Bone Beach um, was very almost adjacent to the north side. So the people who lived on the north side could, at best maybe get to it by walking, depending on where they live, within 15 minutes. So, um, and that's one of the reasons why it was chosen as the designated segregated beach, because it was adjacent to the African-American community. Well, it, it turned out to be a resort. I mean, it was marketed as a tourist attraction for blacks throughout the United States, right? It was. Um uh, the Jim Crow laws were in full effect, um, and um, Atlantic City became one of the first cities in America to have a resort town near a shore. Uh, uh, an ambitious doctor got some other investors to um, build a railroad, and so... Many people from the south, especially for the first time, um, came to the north to visit, and um, they weren't very happy to see the co-mingling of races that existed in this part of the country and demanded that hotel owners do something about it. Um, The African-American population really had no choice but to figure out how they um, could have some of the amenities 
that they had because they were only allowed to occupy the north side for for business needs. Um, and so what they begin to do is pretty much mirror what the whites in Atlantic City were doing, which was to promote uh, the town and their services in particular to other citizens across the country. One of the things that I found that, that I had not heard before, which was very interesting to me, was uh, you mentioned the Green Book and apparently other types of publications which uh, Afro-Americans used in order to ascertain where there were friendly locations where they could go in the in the country. Yeah, how about that? And you know yeah. what? Every every time I'm interviewed, the Green Book does come up, and I had never heard of it, of course, because I wasn't born yet. But uh, that was one of the first things I found out. In my first interview with uh, Henrietta Shelton. Um, there's a picture of her in the book. She's also the founder of the Chicken Bone Beach Historical Foundation. So I actually um, have seen a copy a digital copy, but yes, it very much was a guide, um, a a countrywide guide, every state listing friendly places to eat, to dine, to to, um, use hotels, um, just basic travel services. But you discovered that during the 1800s there were essentially – there was essentially no segregation. There were no restrictions uh, or divisions based on race, and and uh, the blacks could uh, and and did live alongside whites, and they could they could buy property where they wanted to. Absolutely. Um, I want to thank Dr. Richland Goddard for providing us with some of that information. This uh, young lady, who is a native of Atlantic City, got her Ph.D., and decided to focus on on Atlantic City's history and what she contributed to um, this great history was to look at old census. Uh, well, she pretty much recreated or created a black census of Atlantic City that went as far back as the 1600s. So... From her research, which I think she mostly did by going to uh, going through cemetery records, she she found that um, there were there were a lot of African Americans who lived wherever they wanted. They owned homes. They weren't necessarily all like hotel workers or cleaners, just these unskilled trades that uh, a lot of blacks had coming out of slavery, but. Uh, some of them were shoemakers. Um, they had they had served in the military, and they bought homes in Atlantic City, and they worshipped in the same churches as some whites. And yeah, I did find that interesting, and I also find it um, worth noting that without the cooperation of white Atlantic City, that Chicken Bone Beach. I don't think would have been able to advance economically, but they weren't prohibited from owning their own businesses. 
and Nelson Johnson, who is a judge in Atlantic City and also wrote Boardwalk Empire and a book called The North Side. I said, well, why do you think they were okay with that? He said it was it was strictly money. They needed Atlantic City to succeed. Why not have the blacks help, given at that time there was such a large population of them already residing there? And and they comprised, uh, for, for all of those resorts and, and all of that highfalutin stuff they had in Atlantic City, the, the, uh, the blacks comprised mostly the, the, the labor force, didn't they? They the did. Service, they, I, they were mostly the service industry. I, I, I think one of the things I, I, I remember that, that I found interesting in, in your story was that uh, a lot of white people <laughs> who couldn't afford slaves or who had never would never have been able to afford slaves were drawn to Atlantic City because all of the because because they had nothing but black servants serving them while they were there yes yes i would it's easy it's probably safe to say that at some point in time early 1900s when the hotels first opened, that mostly all of their workers were African-American. The ones cooking, the ones serving, the ones cleaning, um, they they pushed the the row carts that were originally, and they're still being used to this day, along the boardwalk. Um, absolutely. What, what are they being used this day? Were. I'm sorry. What what's still being used this day? Uh, what do you call it? Row carts, where you can just pay money to have someone um, pedal you, if you will, down the boardwalk to get to um, your destination. It's not a oh, and, you know the walk isn't bad for walkers, but for some people, it's just a luxury to get in the little row carts. Um, have you ever been to Atlantic City? I have not. Ah, yeah. So the the row the cards are they basically can seat two to three people in the back, and at that time they were made of like a a sturdy basket weave, and the person in the front um, may have been just holding up two sides of it and walking, and they also have some that you pedal. So I would say they were probably walking. The, the earlier you look at the time frame, but they worked they they worked with those as well. Well, speaking of time frame, I'm I'm still interested in this in this integration segregation thing because up uh, one of the statistics that you offered was that uh, as late as 1880, uh, the north side at least of Atlantic City was uh, still 70 percent integrated. But with the Jim Crow, the inception of Jim Crow and all of that stuff, by 1915, uh, only 20% integrated. So Northside just became uh, the black ghetto? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's it. Uh, and if you look at some of the pictures I put in the book, it was um, severely neglected as well um it 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 took many years to 
I guess, bring it up to the equivalency of the south side. They had a lot of unpaved roads. Um, There were not a lot of streetlights. There were no playgrounds. So Chicken Bone Beach kind of became, like, not just the place to go swim, but, you know, it's like the community spot, too. It It was where you could take your kids to get recreation, um, because there there weren't really any there there weren't any basketball courts or you know anything really uh, designed with with making the north side um, just as uh, amenity friendly as the rest of Atlantic City. Kind of like what you still see in America today at times, and and maybe not necessarily based on race, but where where there is um, a lack of uh, a thriving industry um, and one particular race happens to reside in that area, it it can still be neglected. Um, No, today? (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty obvious. Yeah, it is. It's it's way too obvious in way too many places. Uh, but yeah. th- this now is this this was called. Is it still called Missouri Avenue Beach? Is Chicken Bone Beach kind of a nickname? And how did that come about? It is, and I'm certain always will be Missouri Avenue Beach, which is what it was established as in around I don't know the 1930s maybe. Uh, Chicken Bone Beach was a nickname that supposedly got started by um, the employees who cleaned cleaned the beaches, and they were finding like a substantial amount of chicken bones when it at the end of the day when it came time to clean. Um, Part of this has to do with the fact that African Americans were not allowed to patronize the restaurants along the boardwalk. So if they wanted something to eat while they hung out at the beach, they had to uh, bring their own picnic baskets. And um, it's, it's a belief, at least amongst the race, that chicken holds up pretty good um, on a hot day better than most proteins and so it was the protein of choice and my understanding is that they I don't know why they didn't think that this wasn't going to happen but they stuck the bones down in the sand but of course the seagulls pulled them all back up and so there would just be like a slew of bones and so and and to tell you a a little bit more about that nickname I also understand that everyone doesn't embrace it some African Americans have seen it as an insult, so it's. I chose it. Um, I chose it for. It was catchy. It was controversial, and there's so many people that there's a love hate for the name. And I I thought I'd go. That has a lot of energy around it. When we can feel both of those very strong emotions behind the name, I thought. Uh, yeah, I'll go with Chicken Bone Beach, and I didn't do it to, because I, I'm pro or con about it. You know, it it kind of is what it is, and uh, and for those who have embraced it, um, I think that's great because 
African Americans who lived in Atlantic City during these times are very proud of their city, the North Side, and what the people were able to accomplish uh, who lived there. They didn't just become this popular beach. They um, they owned about 250 businesses, cell phones, uh, and in as far as not just bed and breakfasts, but they had, um, you name it, they had their own credit union, um, their own dental offices and doctor offices. They were their own little equivalent to a Chinatown, very self-sufficient, and some people doing extraordinarily well. They functioned very well as a community. And that really stuck out to me in researching their history. Well, the the the, the pictures are are very interesting because uh, everybody's everybody's having a good time. Everybody's comfortable. Everybody is. Uh, it's just it's a normal uh, cross section of of uh, American society. They just happen to all be Afro American. But even on the beach, the lifeguards, the medics, uh, everybody was Afro American. Absolutely, uh, and their history just—it uh, just—I'm just—I'm proud of the fact that as a community, there seemed to have been some economic collaboration. Um, I'm, I've been told stories where um, some people opted to start a different business because they knew someone else was going to start something else. They chose not to compete. They they knew their they knew the importance of working together economically to all be successful. I really uh love hearing that. There was one example um one of the most famous clubs in Atlantic City's north side on Kentucky Avenue was Club Harlem where one of the guys who um opened the club because I think there were two or three. He originally wanted to be a doctor, and it was said that, well, you know, John's a doctor, Leroy's a doctor. If we have, you know, one more, then I'm not going to get any business or I'll take their business. And he decided to open a nightclub. What a difference. And uh, But today, um, the sign that hung in front of Club Harlem on Kentucky Avenue has now become property of that amazing new Smithsonian African American Museum in Washington, D.C. And to think this guy was going to be a doctor. Um, but I love about the, the cooperation uh, amongst them to to succeed. They even had in the, in the midst of all these business owners one woman who became a millionaire and opened her own manufacturing company in Atlantic City called Apex. Um, they just—it's just—it's just, um, yeah, it's just a really, really impressive group of people uh, for many reasons. Well, tell talk a little bit more about Club Harlem, Kentucky Avenue, the big entertainers that were that came to the North Side and even down to the beach and even the Easter parades. Sure. Uh, Nelson Johnson said to me, 
Chicken Bone Beach would not have been as popular as it was had it not been for the entertainment. That is the whole reason um, the color barriers were broken. Whites all across America, in fact, really embraced our jazz music. And so, you know, visitors in particular, they forgot all about the rules and came over to the north side because they wanted to hear artists such as, oh, my goodness, you name it, Nina Simone, Josephine Baker, Sammy Davis, Jr., Um, and the list just goes on because at that time in America, um, getting work as musicians uh, was limited, and my understanding from my history is a a lot of the guys who were musicians from Atlantic City, if they weren't working in Atlantic City, then they were going to New York on Harlem. Um, and those were like on the east side of our country, two of the most popular places for entertainers to get work. Um, some of the clubs were so popular on Kentucky Avenue that there were lines going around the corners of these clubs uh, there were people, like, in the streets blocking the traffic. There were four shows in a day. Uh, Sammy Davis was so popular, I heard he sold out all the time. Um, there'd be a breakfast show, a lunch show, a dinner show, and a late-night show. And there were at least about seven or eight clubs on Kentucky Avenue who kept a crowd in entertainment um, to that capacity, that they were doing four and five shows a day day with people standing in line waiting to get in. And this probably went on from, oh, I want to say the 20s till like the the 60s. People were still uh, patronizing um, clubs on Kentucky Kentucky Avenue, even when we started to, as in our music history, move towards soul and R&B, and then so the type of groups and the the type of entertainment shifted too, and they still remain popular. Um, The the issues, of course, is is you probably know from reading the book and just knowing in general that um, eventually um, civil rights passed, and when many people felt free to now own the home they never had or not have to necessarily live on one side of, side of town, they kind of dispersed, and the business kind of fizzled, and then in came the, the supposedly industry that would rescue Atlantic City, the casinos, which didn't necessarily do as well as they anticipated. But huh. there, was, there, there was a time when the, the, the entertainment on Kentucky Avenue um, was um, very popular and and well sought after. Oh, you've got that documented very well. I got a kick out of the fact that uh, the people who who went to this beach in the 1950s, excuse me, really didn't understand, uh, the younger ones anyway, had no understanding or knowledge that it was a segregated beach anymore. It had become so established. Yes. You know, a lot of people just, um, I actually spoke with a woman, interviewed her. 
she came to a photo exhibit I did for my thesis, and she said, I, we used to go there all the time. I had no idea it was segregated. We just heard about this really popular beach um, that was lots of fun and a good time, and I think that was probably the case um, especially as the years went by, especially more like in the fifth, in the 50s and 60s, they had no idea. They had no idea. But there's, <laughs> there's just a really, I want to say eerie, not really eerie, but more it seemed like destiny. Um, before Missouri Avenue was named Missouri Avenue Beach, African Americans were already going to that beach before it was designated as a segregated beach, when they first started to um, kind of move on, the, migrate from where they may have lived earlier, they started to migrate to the north side. And, of course, people moved there because there was work. There was a lot of infrastructure being built in Atlantic City, the railroads, the hotels, and so people were coming for work and moving to the north side. Um, some African Americans were having church in their homes and then as a group going down to what is what became Chicken Bone Beach to barbecue. So it was already theirs before they were forced to make it theirs. Um, it just kind of happened that way. Well, you, you did a good job of pointing out that people are people no matter what, and the Afro-American community is no more monolithic than uh, anybody else because uh, even in the north side you could live on the wrong side of the tracks there were social classes based by even by shades of the complexion the lighter blacks were less discriminated against uh, you, you said even chicken bone beach was partitioned by social class yeah how about that huh, huh. um which it really that, that that's yeah, it, and I think, and my personal my personal take on that is how sad, how sad as a race that we partition one another when we're already dealing with so much division. Uh, but we did just that, and at the same time, I can empathize with. The, the the mindset behind it. We were already living in a time where white was better, and I could see that translate into, and so a lighter-skinned black is closer to being white, which makes them better. It's like they drank the Kool-Aid too. Blacks drank the same Kool-Aid. Like they, <laughs> they started to believe that about themselves, and that's pretty sad. It's pretty sad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean that 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 came from way back the uh yeah. I think even even back during slavery the 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 lighter skinned blacks always worked in the house in right. the big house. Right. Yeah. But I mean these people were the the the, the pictures that that you that you show us we're we're talking about upscale people, well coiffed, well dressed. 
they're 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 all happy. Uh, it's it's uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Atlantic City in general uh, must have been or must I guess it still is, but uh, you you had a statistic in 1951 there were uh, eight eight million people came to the Atlantic City beaches overall. Yeah. Uh, I I I just try to imagine eight million people on that sand, um, and I heard there was a lot more sand uh, some fifty sixty years ago. Um, I I can believe that the beaches in general were very popular, um, and I still kind of scratch my head wondering how they came up. How were they able to? How do you count how many people are on a beach? But somehow they did it. Um, I looked over the lifeguard journals. I went back as far as I possibly could, and they didn't always keep a census. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing, like I talk about um, the integration and the segregation, there was a time when lifeguards were able to save anyone of any color. So um, historically, there have been African-American lifeguards in Atlantic City. Oh, goodness, what what year was it? As far back as maybe 1919? I I can't be absolutely sure, but they have an early history of employing black lifeguards, and those lifeguards could save anyone. From drowning, but but when uh, the Jim Crow laws went into effect, they were they were also told not to save anyone else that was white and designated to only work on Missouri Avenue Beach too. So I mean that doesn't surprise me, but again there was a time when it was just okay to be a lifeguard anywhere on any of the beaches and. And that changed. They also were not allowed to get swim lessons from the the one YMCA in Atlantic City. Uh, So uh, I was told by some people I interviewed they would drive their kids to Philadelphia to get swim lessons because, of course, if you live in a beachfront city, you want to swim. But at some point they they did get a Y on their side of town or I think it was a Boys and Girls Club and – and so black kids were learning to swim. And I also love that statistically the African-American race, have, they have not taken swim lessons. They have not learned to swim. There's a large percentage of blacks who don't know how to swim. So anytime I interviewed anyone in Atlantic City, I said, this is my, my first question with my recorder in my hand. I'm like, okay, so my first question for everybody, do you swim? And almost everyone I asked knew how to swim, and I met a few guys who surfed um, surfed uh, back in the earlier days huh? in uh, Atlantic City. Yeah, <laughs> like wow. <laughs> and they would look at me too, like you really, you really asked me if I could swim, really? Like yeah. I'm like, come on, you know that it's statistically blacks can't swim, or, or the number, <laughs> is, the percentage is very low. But uh-huh. of course, they they knew how to swim. Unless Almost you live near the beach. Everybody I talked to. Yeah. I'm sorry. Unless you live near the beach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, 
Yeah, the beaches were pretty uh, pretty popular um, and, yeah, packed with um, lots of folks, lots and lots of people. Um, well, I've been talking with Cheryl Woodruff Brooks, author of the Sunbury Press publication Chicken Bone Beach, a pictorial history of Atlantic City's Missouri Avenue Beach. Thanks so much, Cheryl, for giving us some of your time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. If you're one of those people who's always thought Afro-American history was all sadness and struggle, you'll get an entirely different sense of things by picking up this book. It's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other booksellers. The entertainers alone who visited there make up a who's who of Americana. If you want to see world champ Joe Lewis lounging on a beach or Martin Luther King, pick this book up and share it. This has been the author's interview from Sunbury Press.